Tonight we're going to start a series on spiritual warfare. I don't know how long it's going to last. It'll be anywhere from three weeks to the end of the year. It just depends on what I feel like the Lord's laying on my heart from week to week. Uh, I have some things already planned that I know we're going to talk about. Other things I'm kind of just praying about for sure, whether or not we're going to. But this is something I feel like the Lord is pressing on me about. To me, it feels like we're, at least I feel like I'm in a, a season of spiritual warfare. And this will be good to focus us for what we're facing. If it's indeed just us and not just me, it'd be good for me if it's, it is just me. But I also feel like more is coming um, and we need to be prepared. We're going to start tonight in Matthew 16 and we're just going to look at one verse. You don't need to stand. We're just going to read this one verse, Matthew 16 and 26. For what good will it do a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your love and your kindness. Thank you for your word uh, that is a sure guide for us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have tonight to study your word. Help us to lay aside the cares of life, burdens, and concerns we may have brought in. Let us be focused on you in this time. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your word and your ways for your glory. Use this challenge us, to change us, to refine us, to prepare us, Father, to fight the spiritual battles we have to fight day in and day out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. We, we aren't going to do a deep dive into this passage. Tonight's going to be more of a topical uh, a message, but I do want to start here because of the serious warning we find in this verse. We're warned to be careful lest we forfeit our souls. Now, that alone is a, I mean, that's a weighty warning. But there are several truths about this warning that make it more powerful and more challenging. First, notice in verse 24 who the warning was given to. Then Jesus said to his disciples, right? So all of what we're or what we're talking about in verse 26, it is a part of a larger context of Jesus talking about the cost of discipleship for anyone who wants to follow him. And this is beginning with his disciples, right? He is telling his disciples, if they want to follow him, this is what it will take for them to be his disciples. And this is also going to inform how they teach and how they try to help others begin to follow him. And as a part of this greater teaching on the cost of discipleship is a warning about forfeiting our souls. Second. I want you to notice what we forfeit our souls to gain. What good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? So what we forfeit or what we forfeit our souls to gain is the world. Now we'll talk more about the world and its danger next week. But for tonight, just know the world we're warned about is what 1 John talks about, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh are things, are the desires of our body. Things like sex, sleep, food, and pleasure. The lusts of the eyes are things we see and then begin to desire to acquire. And, and basically can be anything we see and want and begin to pursue to gain it. And the pride of life is the desire to be seen, noticed, recognized, and honored. The pride of life is also arrogance and conceit that makes us feel we are better than others. 
But then finally notice the exchange rate. What will a person give in exchange for his soul? If we gain everything the world offers, we gain it at the expense of our soul. And the wording here implies that this is a bad exchange on our part. Our souls are worth more than the ability to fulfill every desire we have ever had and every desire we ever will have. Our souls are worth more than everything we have ever seen and wanted and anything we will ever see and begin to want. Our souls are worth more than honor and recognition and award and any honor and any recognition and any award the world offers. And our souls are worth more than anything that would make us feel we are better than others. Now, not only are our souls worth more than all of these things individually, but our souls are worth more than all of these things combined. So if we were to live a life and we were able to fulfill every desire we have, and along with that, we were able to acquire anything we saw and wanted. And if we received the greatest recognitions and awards and honors the world gave us, and it left us feeling we were so much better than the average person, if we gained all of those things in exchange for our souls, we have made A poor business decision. Because our souls are worth more than all of those things combined. So a question is, how does someone forfeit their souls in exchange for the world? The answer, I believe, is gradually. Look at what we're told in Hebrews. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so we do not drift away from it. Now, the author says we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, the things of God, the things from the word of God, or we'll begin to drift away from them. Now, obviously, pay much closer attention means to take heed, to be careful about. We are to be careful in how we pay attention to the things of God. We are to be careful in how we pay attention to the Word of God. We are to be careful to how we pay attention to what it is to, to follow Jesus and to try to do His will. And if we are not careful, if we do not pay much closer attention, we will begin to drift away from it. Now, the idea of drift ought to haunt us. Because it's not the idea of huge and decisive steps away from Jesus. Rather, it is small but consistent steps away from Jesus. The word translated as drift often carried with it the idea of carelessness. So it's not even always the intentional thought of I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with God's word. I'm just done with it all and I'm turning my back and going another way. And in the process, we forfeit our souls to gain the world. It is also just being careless about paying attention to the warnings of God's word. It is being careless to guard our passions. It is being careless to guard our souls. And when we are careless about these things, we begin a slow but steady drift 
away from Jesus. Now, the main truth from this for us tonight is we must be intentional about guarding our souls. We must be intentional about guarding our souls. If I didn't mention it, that's the title for the message tonight, guarding our souls. So I'm going to spend the rest of the time tonight giving us three ways to be intentional about guarding our souls. Number one, prioritize our relationship with Jesus. The number one way to guard our souls is to prioritize our relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, everything else will rise and fall on this. We're going to talk about two other things after this. But if we prioritize our relationship with Jesus, we will do the other two things. But at the same time, if we don't prioritize our relationship with Jesus, we will not do the other two things. This is the most important point. Everything will rise and fall on our relationship with Jesus. If our relationship with Jesus is not right, nothing else is going to be right either. But if our relationship with Jesus is right, everything else will work its way out. One of the things that bothers me most in my life is how disturbingly easy it is for me to drift in my relationship with Jesus. You likely know what I'm talking about. Drift, as we saw in Hebrews, is the right word. It's not leaps and bounds away from Jesus. It's usually not even intentional. It's usually so slow We don't even realize it's happening until one day we sort of come to ourselves and realize how far from Jesus we've drifted. And in that moment, we're often shocked at how far away from him we've gotten at how we used to be really close and we used to be right there. But now we're way over here. How is your relationship with Jesus tonight? How's mine? Is it getting stronger Or is it cooling off? Now, none of us would want to publicly admit our relationship with Jesus is cooling off. But we must be honest with ourselves about it if we're going to prioritize our relationship with Jesus. We must learn to ask and answer, honestly answer hard questions on our own if we're going to prioritize our relationship with Jesus. Questions like, Are my affections, emotions, and desires for Jesus growing or diminishing? In what ways? Now, in all of these questions, they're going to be in what ways kind of things. We're going to see that often. And that's intentional. It's too easy to ask yes or no questions and not get into the particulars. Is my affections for Jesus growing? Sure. How? In what ways do I see this? Right. If if my relationship with Jesus is a priority, I need to be specific. I need to get into the particulars of these things, not just give easy answers that I know are the right answers. The answers I want to be true, the answers I hope are true. We need to dig down and get to the answers that are true. Now, affections, emotions and desires. As free will Baptists, we don't typically put a lot of stock in affections, emotions, and desires. And we are wrong 
in this. Think about the number of times God's word, particularly the Psalms, speaks of our affections, emotions and desires concerning our relationship with Jesus. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for God. That's a desire. Psalm 63, God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. That's an affection and a desire. Psalm 84, my soul longed, even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. There we have affections, emotions, and desires. Mark 11. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Again, your affections, emotions, and desires. This is the first and great commandment. Now these are just a few from the top of my head this afternoon without doing any searching at all. They sure sound a lot like our affections, emotions, and desires matter when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. What does it say about our relationship with Jesus if our affections, emotions, and desires for Jesus are stagnant instead of zealous, indifferent instead of passionate? We have to ask these questions. We have to answer these questions honestly. We have to ask questions like, how's my devotional life? Am I spending consistent time in the word and prayer? In what ways is the word of God impacting my life? How is my prayer life? Our devotional life, how we cultivate our relationship with Jesus, it matters. How's yours? How's mine? In what ways am I aware of Jesus' presence in my daily life? Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If he's always with us, there ought to be an awareness of that, shouldn't there? Is he? Are we aware of it? Do we know he's with us? In what ways am I growing closer to Jesus? How am I knowing him better? How am I beginning to love him more? Asking and honestly answering these type of questions. Help us see what's going on in our relationship with Jesus. A fact that may be hard for us to accept, but is indeed a fact, is this. We are all as close to Jesus as we choose to be. We are all as close to Jesus As we choose to be. Now to prove this is a truth and not my opinion. I want you to think about all the times we're invited to come to Jesus. Matthew 11. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened. John 7. If anyone is thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest in the heavens. So we are able to boldly approach the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 10. 
Jesus has opened a way for us to enter the holy place. So we're to approach with sincere heart and in full assurance. James 4. Come close to God and he will come close to you. First Peter 5. Cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires to take the water of life without cost. That's a lot of invitations to come. And there's more. Again, those were just off the top of my head without searching. The overall picture is that we are all invited to come to Jesus. If Jesus has given us these invitations to come to him, and yet there's still some sort of a distance between us and him. And there's something hindering our relationship with him. Where does the breakdown in the relationship come from? Us. It comes from our failure to come to Jesus. He has given the invitations. He has opened up the way. He has called us to himself. If there is any distance. The problem is always in us. So let me give you some basic yet important things that we can do to draw closer to Jesus. First, read God's word consistently. I read many blogs and many books by many different people, but as good as these books are, they're not God's word. And they can never take the place of of God's word in my life. Jesus is the point of God's word. Every part of God's word points us to Jesus in one way or another. God's word reveals the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. God's word reveals to us the very words of Jesus. Telling us how we can know Him, how we show our love for Him, and how we live for Him, and how we act as His disciples. If we want to be close to Jesus, we must read the divinely inspired book that is all about Jesus. Secondly, pray regularly. When we read God's Word, Jesus talks to us. When we pray, we talk to Jesus. This two-way communication is necessary For a thriving relationship with Jesus. One mistake we can make in prayer that will hinder prayer from being a a, a driving force. Giving us a thriving relationship with Jesus. Is thinking prayer is just asking Jesus for stuff. Prayer is much more than that. Prayer is a multifaceted communication with Jesus. In prayer we worship Jesus. We praise him and we bless his name. In prayer, we confess our sins and failures and receive his grace and forgiveness. In prayer, we thank Jesus for all he has given us and all he has done for us in our lives. In prayer, we ask Jesus to intervene in our lives and in the lives of others. The greatest blessing we receive from prayer isn't stuff. It's Jesus. All this talking to Jesus. Reminding ourselves of the greatness of Jesus. 
Experiencing the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. Reminding ourselves of all He has already done in us and through us and for us. Has a profound impact to deepen and make our relationship with Jesus more intimate than we could have ever thought. The greatest blessing of prayer is more of Jesus. So we read God's word consistently, pray regularly, make church a priority. Gathering with other disciples of Jesus and worshiping Jesus will draw you closer to Jesus. Now, let me be clear. Our relationship with Jesus is not based on corporate worship. But it is true as well. We can never have an intimate relationship with Jesus while being disobedient to his word about forsaking corporate worship. In our day, it's it's a commonly held thought of I love Jesus, but not the church. The church is called the bride of Christ, the bride he he died to purchase, that he works to sanctify. If you think about if you take that illustration and you apply it on a on a human level. Someone comes to me and says, Stacy, I love you and I want to be friends with you, but I can't stand your wife. Guess what? We ain't going to be friends. Neither can we go to Jesus and say, I love you, but I hate the church. I hate your people. I hate your bride. To love Jesus is to love his bride. It is to love his people. To be devoted to Jesus is to be devoted to his church, to be devoted to his people, to be devoted to his bride. Think about what we do in church. We read God's word, which is about Jesus. We sing songs to and about Jesus, reminding us of his greatness and his goodness and all the works he has done for us in our lives. We pray to Jesus. We study God's word and are encouraged to be faithful in our relationship with Jesus. Do you see how the church is geared by Jesus to draw us closer to Jesus? Jesus is always the focus of what we do every time we gather. Missing church is always missing an opportunity to learn about Jesus. It is always missing an opportunity to praise and worship Jesus with other people who love Jesus. It is always missing an opportunity to be encouraged by the work and the words of Jesus. It is always missing an opportunity to be challenged to be faithful to Jesus. So read God's word consistently. Pray regularly. Make church a priority. And then fast occasionally. Now fasting isn't... Something we hear a lot about in our day. However, fasting has always been a part of what the church did. Fasting is to go without eating or something else for a period of time. So we can spend more time in prayer or more time studying God's word. Fasting is an expression of our desire and dependence on Jesus. Fasting is essentially saying to Jesus, more than our stomachs desire this food, Our souls desire you. More than our bodies depend on food, our souls and our lives depend on you. Now, none of those are revolutionary or new. 
If I were to write a book and call it Four Ways to Draw Closer to Jesus, and those were the chapters, it wouldn't sell many copies. Yet, when you read God's Word, you find those are the God-ordained ways of coming to Jesus and drawing closer to Jesus. I, I didn't make any of those up. All of that comes directly out of God's word. Often, we want some new or novel way of coming to Jesus. If someone were to write a book with some new and novel, slightly difficult way to come to Jesus, something that seemed a little odd or a little different than what the norm was, it would sell a billion million copies. Because we're always looking for some new thing. But none of those things would work like this does. Often we want to come up with our own ways of coming to Jesus. But that doesn't work. Our ways don't work. And our ways don't work because they're our ways and not His ways. In the end, Jesus is Lord. And as such, He gets to be the one to determine how we come to Him. And when we say to him, I don't like your ways and I want to do it my way. We miss Jesus altogether. These simple, easy spiritual disciplines enable us to have a thriving relationship with Jesus. Let me say one more thing about this and we'll move on to the next thing on our list. These things must be done consistently over time. Before anything will have a positive impact on our life, it must be done consistently over time. Dieting one day a month produces no fruitful results. Lifting weights one day a month doesn't build any muscles. Running one day a month doesn't make us better runners. Those things must be done consistently over time. Before anything will have a positive impact on our life, it must be done consistently over time. This is true with dieting, with exercise, and it's true with spiritual disciplines intended on drawing us closer to Jesus. Doing these things once a month is better than nothing. But it's not going to draw us closer to Jesus. We're going to have to do them consistently over time. And really, if you think about it, Doing them consistently over time, that sounds a lot like prioritizing our relationship with Jesus, doesn't it? We must prioritize our relationship with Jesus if we want to guard our souls. Secondly, we must make every effort to grow spiritually. God's word teaches it is God's will for every disciple of Jesus to become like Jesus. Romans eight twenty nine. Salvation is just the beginning. It's not the end of our journey. It's just the start. After being saved, we're to be progressively sanctified as we grow spiritually and become more and more like Jesus. But there's good news about this. One is we can do it. Two is we can know how to do it. Three is there are great benefits from doing it. Turn with me to Second Peter 1. Page 938, I hope.
Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's one of the first passages of God's Word Jesus ever used to really get my attention and draw me closer to Him. Let me show you some, some powerful truths from this passage. Look at verse 3 and 4. We'll start in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Through these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Now, those verses are super hopeful. And we don't have time to get deep into it. But the summary of that is this. Everything we need to live a godly life is ours through Jesus. Everything we need to grow spiritually has been given to us in the precious promises of God. So, can you and I... Can we grow spiritually? The answer to that is yes. If you have been born again, you can grow spiritually because it has been given to you. Precious and magnificent promises. And by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. And we receive these promises through the true knowledge of him who called us. If we know Jesus, if we've been saved by Jesus. We have everything we need to grow and become more like Jesus. So what do we do now? Verse five, for this very reason, right? So because we have these promises, because we know him, apply all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And your godliness, brotherly kindness. And your brotherly kindness, love. Again, we don't have time to go deep into it. But I just want to focus on the very first of verse 5. For this reason, apply all diligence. Because we know Jesus. Because we have these promises. We are to give all diligence. To add things to our faith. And we even see what we're supposed to add. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, something that's important for us to notice here. Spiritual growth doesn't happen automatically. We have everything we need, but we must give all diligence. Listen, here's a, again a, a truth. Just because we've been saved X number of years does not mean we are spiritually mature disciples of Jesus. Many times in my life I have known people who have been saved for 20 and 30 years and they are no more spiritually mature than they were on the day they were saved. We must apply all diligence if we're to grow. We must put forth the necessary effort to add things to our faith. In verse 8 and 9 we see. That if these qualities are yours. And increasing. They do not make you useless. Or unproductive. In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For the one who likes these qualities. Is blind or short sighted. Having forgotten. 
His purification from his former sin. Spiritually growing disciples are useful and productive for the kingdom of God. Disciples, people who profess faith in Jesus but don't apply all diligence are useless and unproductive. That's the point of the passage. Do we want to be useful for Christ? Do we want to be productive in our service and devotion to Him? Then we give all diligence to add these things to our faith. When we don't add these things to our faith, we become short-sighted. The one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's an interesting picture. And I wish we had a lot of time to go into on it. But it seems to be... What it's saying is, as disciples, when we fail to give all diligence to add these things to our faith, over time we forget what Jesus has done for us. Now, I'm not saying we forget like, who's Jesus and was I saved? I'm not saying that, it's not that. You know, when we were saved, when we were first saved, we were amazed at the work Jesus had done as He had forgiven us. My goodness, how awesome that was. Well, as we... Give all diligence, we sort of stay amazed and awed at what Jesus has done in us and through us and for us. But when we stop and we begin to stagnate, rather than being amazed at what Jesus has done, it's more like, eh, I mean, yeah, he saved me, don't get me wrong, but I mean, I wasn't really all that bad to begin with, right? Because notice it says their purification from his former sins. We begin to forget. How sinful we were. We begin to forget how great the salvation we have experienced is. And then verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Boy, that's a powerful thought right there, isn't it? Those who know the promises and give all diligence to add to their faith will never fall away. Those who are continually applying all diligence to add to their faith are less likely to forfeit their souls in exchange for the things of the world. Because they're so busy adding to their faith, they don't have time to be seduced and drawn away by the things of of the world. We cannot add to our faith and drift away at the same time. Because if we're adding to our faith, we are paying more careful attention to the things we have heard. We cannot add to our faith and neglect our soul at the same time. While we're working on adding to our faith, we are caring for our souls. By giving all diligence to add to our faith, we are being sure to stay on course. And we are intentionally caring for our souls as we must. Now keep in mind with this. Spiritual growth is like going up a down escalator. Nothing in this world is pushing us to be more like Jesus. Everything in this world is pushing us to not do it. Right? I mean, everything, whether it's Music or TV or books or politics or news. None of that is making us more holy. 
None of that is progressively sanctifying us and making us like Jesus. All of it instead is pushing back on us. And so by adding these things, we are going against the current. We are going against the flow. And since we're going against the flow, if we stop, we don't stay static. We begin to drift backwards. In our spiritual lives, we are either in a state of growth or we are in a state of decline. You don't stay static. So we must make every effort to grow spiritually. And then finally, be aware or beware of our sinful nature. The number one enemy that will work to prevent us from prioritizing our relationship with Jesus is us. The number one enemy that will work to keep us from making spiritual growth a priority is us. More often than not, we are our own worst enemies. By and large, we talk about the devil and the things he did. And, and he's real. And we'll talk about that. But make no mistake. The devil doesn't have to deal with most of us. Because we shoot our own selves in the foot. We sabotage our own relationship with Jesus. We stop giving all diligence to add to our faith all by ourselves. Our sinful nature is still present within us, still working against us. And one of the most foolish and dangerous mistakes we could ever make is to think we would never. I would never forfeit my soul for what the world offers. And if we see somebody do that, we think, oh, what a foolish decision they've made. Because we wouldn't forfeit our souls for what they have forfeited their souls for. But the world isn't monolithic. It offers a myriad of temptations to damage the human soul. The world offers a multitude of temptations for the lust of the flesh. The world offers a multitude of temptations for the lust of the eyes. The world offers a multitude of temptations for the pride of life. And not only does the world offer a multitude of options, several of those options appeal to us individually. All of us are tempted in one way or another by the lust of the flesh. By the pride of life. By the lust of the eyes. Maybe not the same one. Maybe the same thing doesn't tempt us. But we are all tempted by something. Something within what the world has and what the world offers. It, it stirs funny feelings in our hearts. It captures our imaginations. And we begin to focus. Even as born again disciples of Jesus, we can choose what the world offers over what Jesus wants. This is a warning we're given. 
The desire of the flesh is against the spirit. The spirit is against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. If you're a born again disciple of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you pulling you to do what Jesus wants you to do. But your flesh, your sinful nature is still there. And for every desire the Spirit gives you to serve Jesus, your flesh gives an alternate desire to keep you from serving Jesus. This is the reality each one of us must live with. Inside each of us, there is a part of us we do not want to talk about or think about, but it is there nonetheless. At all times in our life, Our sinful nature is living within us, waiting on an opportunity to lead us away from Jesus. To convince us to make the exchange. To forfeit our souls for what the world offers. And we must have the humility of mind to recognize and accept that we are flawed and imperfect people. Who still have a sinful nature at work within us. That makes us vulnerable to giving in to the temptations offered by the world. Again, we're warned against this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Hopefully page 875. Verses 1 through 13, I'll just kind of read it and come back and talk about it a little bit. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses. And in the cloud and the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for their dead bodies are now spread out in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they indeed crave them. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Nor are we to commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And twenty three thousand of them fell in one day. Nor are we to put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyers. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. With the temptation will provide a way of escape. So he'll be able to endure it. In this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul reviews some of what God had done for Israel. In verses 1 through 4, he talks about God's leadership of the nation, his amazing provision for them. Then in verses 5 through 10, he explains that even though these people had seen God do amazing things, they still sinned against God. Now think about it. They literally had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, manna falling from the sky, and they still sinned. 
against God. Because of their sin and because of their rebellion against God, he was forced to punish them. Many of them were killed. Now notice the sins he mentioned. Craving evil things. That's a broad category. Verse 6. Idolatry. In verse 7. For us, idolatry could be putting someone or, or something, likely ourselves, ahead of Jesus. Sexual sin, verse 8. Putting the Lord to the test, verse 9. One of my commentaries said the idea is they tried God's patience. They tried God's patience by seeing how far they could go before he punished them. The commentary explained many times we as disciples of Jesus feel as though Jesus asked too much of us. And this causes us to miss out on much of what the world offers. So what we do is we see how far we can go or how close we can get before we begin to face negative consequences. Surely it won't be that big of a deal. Surely Jesus will forgive us if we just look, if we just taste, if we just touch, if we just take a tiny sip. This seeing how close we can get to the temptations of the world is the attitude of putting the Lord to the test. They complained in verse 10. They complained about God's provision, God's protection, and God's deliverance. And they were destroyed for this. Now these sins are all familiar. And they all fall under the umbrella. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And verse 6 and 11 make it clear these things happened as examples for us. They were given to warn us. These stories warn us to be careful not to make the same mistakes they made. They're an example to let us know God will punish sin. They teach us the importance of guarding our souls and being aware of our sinful nature. Now, Paul knew human nature and he knew people reading this would say, that was them, I would never. But look at verse 12. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. <clears throat> if we think we would never forfeit our souls for what the world offers, we're in a dangerous place. For that thought itself is from the pride of life. When we see somebody exchange their soul for the things of the world and we think, I would never do that. Oh, we have given in to one of the temptations of the world because we have concluded we're better than them. And that is the pride of life. One of Satan's most effective ploys is to appeal to our pride because deep down. We all want to think we're better than others. Pride is dangerous. Proverbs warns us pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before a fall. Proverbs 16 and 18. The day we conclude we have arrived and would never be tempted to forfeit our souls for what the world offers is likely a day in which we are the most vulnerable. But there is good news in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken us except something common to man. God is faithful. will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But with the temptation, we'll provide a way of escape so we'll be able to endure it. Regardless of the temptation the world offers, there's always a way out. Our always faithful and all-powerful God ensures there is always a way of escape. While we will be tempted by the world, 
to forfeit our souls in exchange for what the world offers us, we can be victorious over those temptations. As children of God, we never have to give in to the temptation. We never have to make that exchange. Our God is faithful to ensure. We just have to look for that way of escape and take it when it comes. One of the keys to guarding our souls is to be aware and beware of our sinful nature. We must be honest that when the song says prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It is speaking of us. And Lord, have mercy, we feel it. We must be aware, but we must be aware without falling into fatalism. It is not hopeless because our God is all powerful and always faithful. And he will make a way of escape. And you may be thinking this is a strange way to start a series on spiritual warfare. Because spiritual warfare teaching typically focused on the fact we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And that's true. Or we may think spiritual warfare teaching focuses on the idea of fighting for the souls of others, fight for the souls of our loved ones, fight for the souls of the people in our community, which is also true. But we cannot fight spiritual battles effectively unless it is well with our soul. We can't fight principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places if it is not well with our soul. We cannot fight for the souls of others if it is not well with our soul. Before we can fight and win the spiritual battles, we must guard our souls. It must be well with our souls. Spiritual warfare is real. And we'll talk against talk about fighting against our enemies starting next week. But hear me. We are no good to anyone if it is not well with our souls. We must be intentional about guarding our souls so that we can fight and win the spiritual battles that will surely come into our lives and fight and win the spiritual battles for the souls of those we love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We praise you tonight for your word and we praise you for the grace that you've given us. Help us to take what we've learned tonight and apply it to our life. Let us be sure we are making our relationship with Jesus a priority. Let us be sure we are giving every effort to add to our faith. Let us be sure we are aware and not fooled by our sinful nature. Let us be intentional about guarding our souls. Make us able to fight the enemy that we'll face, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.